This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. I want to stay a bit this evening with a theme that we spoke about, touched on last week, which has to do with the, the sense of mystery and the mystery of being born in a human body and being incarnated and being here. Um, it's pretty, pretty mysterious and strange. Um, and nobody, no scientist, nobody can explain how an acorn remembers for 20 million years the history of oak trees, but it does. And nobody can really understand how consciousness can perceive a rainbow and which is more ephemeral and which is real, exactly what real is. Um, Not to speak of the fact that there are 50 billion trillion stars out there um, in all the far distant galaxies that the Hubble's been able to to, to, uh, take pictures of, which means that there's 1.5 trillion stars for every man, woman, and child on the earth if you want to start naming yours. And, uh, well, as one, as one poet said, there are sacred places everywhere where the world is still our holy grove where we wander hunting for the tree of life under which we already live. Now, one of the, one of the important qualities of a meditative life or opening oneself to a spiritual dimension is that it's an opening to beauty, an opening to harmony, an opening to some sense of um, rhythm and uh, happiness, justice in the world. Um, Sometimes people get the sense of spirituality as being a grim duty, you know, like, you know, taking your vitamins and working out at the gym and doing your meditation, you know, is is kind of keep you in shape somehow or other. Um, 
There was a a study that was done, of course, one might say something about many studies, but nevertheless, in London some years ago, they took two streets in an area of London that was quite poor, um, and because it was poor also there was a lot of crime. Um, Parallel streets about 10 blocks apart, and on one of the two streets, um, unbeknownst to the residents, unbeknownst to the residents, they set a team um, to go out and clean the graffiti, um, sweep the streets really regularly for a year, fix all the broken lights, put some plants in, and make it look beautiful. And they kept it very clean for that year. And at the end of a year, they looked at their statistics, and the crime on the street that was beautiful had dropped by 50%. There's some way in which, um, with the speed and complexity of our life, and all the things that we get busy doing, we lose touch with the mystery and the beauty, the rhythm that we're a part of. And there was this amazing um, article in the Washington Post last winter. They took the, one of the world's most um, respected violinists, Joshua Bell, stuck him down in the metro with a, a $3.5 million Stradivarius and a you know, opened the case so people would put coins in it, right? And he played some Bach, some amazing Bach pieces on his Stradivarius. And nobody stopped to listen except kids. Little kids would stop. Everybody else was on their way. And I don't know what he got, you know, 17 bucks for, for uh, you know, an hour of playing. Um, what has happened to us as a culture in some way? And and it doesn't mean that we should ignore warfare and the hunger in the world and the continuing racism and the ecological problems and so forth. But one of the sources of all of this is a loss of real attention and real connection to what's beautiful. What's beautiful in another being, what's beautiful in the biosphere, what's harmonious in the ways that we might live together. This is the poet John Ciardi. He writes, An ulcer is an unkissed imagination taking its revenge for having been jilted. (laughs) It's an undanced dance, an unpainted watercolor, an unwritten poem. And our bodies too know when we have not allowed the beauty of life, the creative spirit that we're born with, that every child has, come through us. Sometimes the greatest political act is to turn off CNN or Fox or PBS or whatever, you, you know, KPFA, whatever your particular poison is, and um, turn on Mozart, you know, or walk in the sunset, or turn on, I don't know, whoever your favorite music happens to be. It can be Lady Gaga, if that's you know, whatever your style is, right? But there's something about feeling the, the, the mysterious beauty of being alive that's critical to nourish the spirit or the heart or the soul or something like that. Without beauty, we get dead to the world or we get overwhelmed in some fashion by the sufferings of it as that um, poet uh, Jack Gilbert writes about in a brief 
for the defense, where he says, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else. But we also enjoy our lives because that's what the gods want. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure-seeking, but not delight and enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. And so there comes in some way a question of how alive can we be and how much beauty that is in us and is around us can we see and sense and honor. And as we come to sit in meditation, we can see this not as a denial of the sorrows of the world. As I said last week, we can be terribly loyal to our suffering, you know. But there's something more than, more than suffering. Suffering is, is true. But there's also a grace that keeps us alive, that surrounds and holds everything, or you could call it the great compassion of the Buddha, or all kinds of languages. And in language itself, um, this beauty, this harmony is expressed as poetry. Poetry is the music of language. You can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day from lack of what is found there. So I want to talk about poetry tonight, but really poetry as the vehicle for a kind of awakening in ourselves. You know, Pablo Neruda writes about the man who is frightened by a lily in one of his lines, that place where we can't let the world touch us uh, too deeply. Or Hafiz, who says, um, the great religions are ships, poets the lifeboats. Every sane person I know has jumped overboard. (laughs) So he invites you into the water of poetry. Or Gabrielle Mistral, she says, what the soul does for the body, the poet does for her people. That the voice of the poet is that voice of the spirit or the soul of those who are around. And, you know, I was listening to some of the Supreme Court nomination hearings, right? So I have to read this poem to you. It's called A Charm Against the Language of Politics, just to help. When you hear the politicians' slippery words, enunciate the vegetables, artichoke, okra, parsnip, calendula, cauliflower. When they tell you their plans and ideas, recite the apples by name, wine sap, Granny Smith, Jonathan, Rome Beauty, Macintosh. After turning off the television, chant the names of spiders, Black Widow, Combfoot, Orb Spider, Green Recluse. Remember, most short verbs are ethical. Hatch, spin, eat, rest. Dig deep, lay low, and hole up for the duration. And it's not to say that we don't have a political responsibility, but you know what I'm talking about. There's a way in which we lose what's important in the 
24-7 news cycle, you know, it's not an oil spill, it's, a, it's kind of a, ah, it's a spill of, of um, over-information. It's an information spill. And the Buddhist teachings are filled with poetry. The first words of the Buddha after he awakened under the Bodhi tree were a poem. O house builder, thou art seen at last. The ridgepole is shattered, the rafters are broken. Freed am I from this house of sorrow. Or it's translated in different ways. And builder of this prison, this house of sorrow. I've seen who you are, I have walked out the door, I am free. Milarepa, the hundred thousand songs of Milarepa. The Buddha again, he says, the scent of rose bay and the fragrance of rose bay and jasmine and sandalwood can blow only as far as the winds. But the virtue of one who tends the heart wisely spreads to the whole ends of the earth. And Ryokan, the beloved Japanese Zen poet, if someone asks my abode, I reply, the east edge of the Milky Way. Puts things in perspective, basically. And you can hear how simple the language of poetry is to speak of things that we need to be reminded about. If you can see with the eyes of a poet, says Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, In this one sheet of paper is floating a cloud, the rain clouds that watered the trees from which this paper was made, and the trees, you know, and the hummus and soil in that forest, and and the logger who cut them down, and the logger's wife who made the sandwich that morning, and the wheat that was in the bread, and the combine that harvested that wheat, and everything that you can possibly imagine, the whole of the universe, the sunshine that grew that tree, the star that's our nearest star, all in this sheet of paper. Because nothing exists by itself. It all exists in this interbeing, the interwoven interbeing. And to meditate is to take a deep breath and go, oh yeah, here we are. Oh yes, interwoven in this mystery. And it puts things into perspective. You sit so quietly with your breath and uh, feel how the breath breathes itself. And then, I think this is Merwin, little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And you feel the breath bring you back to yourself in some way, each breath. So simple, one line. You can hear a lot of truth in a poem. Emily Dixonson writes, because I did not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. (laughs) Or, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? I mean, who are we, this mystery of being someone or no one? The Zen poem says, don't draw another's bow. Don't don't, Don't ride another's horse. I mean, there's so much teaching in that. Your own bow, your own horse. Or Suzuki Roshi put it this way. He said, stop waiting at the bus stop um, and realize that you're already on the bus. (laughs) 
That's Zen, right? Always waiting, waiting, waiting for something in your life that's going to make it right. Instead of, this is it. This, is, this mystery is it now, always here and now in the present. So as we meditate, we might have these ideas of getting quiet and you know, having some great meditative experience, but you just sat for half an hour or so, and what you discover, like Thich Nhat Hanh's paper, is that to meditate is in, to encounter the whole universe, that we contain all things, what Emily Dixonson called the mob within the heart. So you sit quietly in sleepiness and fear and longing and grief and restlessness and love and, and ideas and creativity. And all these things arise. You hear all the voices. And the unfinished business of the heart shows itself very quickly. You sit quietly and the things that need to be tended to appear for you because they've been waiting to be listened to. This, their songs, their tears or their love or their beauty, they want to be heard. Here's Carl Sandberg. See if I can find you, Carl. There's a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue, for raw meat, the hot lapping of blood, I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me, silver gray fox, sniff and guess and pick things out of the wind and air and nose in the dark night. There's a hog in me, snout and belly, machinery for eating and grunting and sleeping, satisfied in the sun. There's a fish in me. I came from salt blue water gates and scurried with shoals of herring and water spouts with porpoises. There's a baboon in me, clambering, clawed, dog-faced, yapping a gowlute's hunger, hairy under the armpits. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams, and the mockingbird warbles in the forenoon in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. I got something else. It's a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It's a father and mother and lover. It came from God knows where, and it's going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo, and I say yes and no and sing and kill and work, and I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let me go. And so you sit very quietly. Everybody looked like little Buddhas or big Buddhas or whatever you were, you know, nice Chinese Buddhas with a big belly or whatever form you took. You looked Buddha-like. And inside is the zoo. And you know it's true. If somebody could put a little, like, microphone inside the mind and then turn up the sound, the people around you would go, oh, my God. She has to listen to that all the time, you know. The judgment and the comments and the planning and the anxiety and the hopes and the... I mean, come on. So the poets, Freud put it this way. He said, wherever I've gone, a poet has been there before. The poets really tell the story of the zoo inside and out and how to be a good zookeeper. I mean, because how do we relate to the zoo? Meditation is an invitation to this beauty or this connection with life, to an aliveness, a presence, a mystery, 
a passion, a freedom. People think that to become mindful is like detaching yourself from the world, but it's quite the opposite. Here's a poem from Thomas Carlyle. He writes, It's good to use the best china, the oldest lace tablecloth, the most genuine goblets. Of course, there's a risk every time we use anything or share an intimate moment, a fragile cup of revelation. But not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe where nothing is enjoyed or broken or spilled or spoken or stained or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found. And in that way, mindfulness, mindfulness, you sit and sense the breath, feel the body, allow the stories and emotions all to reveal themselves and come into a place of connection with this mystery of life. Mindfulness is an invitation to be more present, more alive, more able to dance with the energies of life rather than the body of fear that shuts it down. And so the, I remember my teacher Deepamash, you know, somebody asked her, doesn't meditation kind of make you quiet and passive and dull? And she said, I had been quiet and passive and dull, and meditation woke me up. Life is fresh in a way that it never was until I paid attention. Rumi talks about this poetic journey, because Rumi is this extraordinary poet, like Mozart, who wrote down his symphonies as fast as he could, because he just heard them. They were being dictated to him by the cosmos or whatever. It's the same for Rumi. Rumi wandered around, you know, with his acolytes and disciples, and poetry just poured out of him, and they kept writing it down. It was it, the Mathnawi is called the Ocean of Poetry. For years, Rumi just opened his mouth, and like Mozart, the poetry just came out. And 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 it's beautiful because it's wild discipline, and ecstatic intelligence. It has both form and abandon in it, and it has you know intelligence and and beauty all all together. And anyway, Rumi says that the spiritual life has three phases, the camel, the lion, and the child. And as I speak of these, maybe you can sense this as you do your meditation or undertake whatever is a, your own spiritual discipline, because the images of poetry, the metaphors, speak in a language deeper than just an explanation. The camel. The camel symbolizes the first steps of meditation, which one takes forever, it turns out, of devotion, repetition, service, a kind of necessary devotion, commitment. Gandhi called it blessed monotony, right? The willingness just to sit even though you get hungry and not get up and open the refrigerator. The willingness to sit even though you're bored to say, all right, I'll touch the boredom or the loneliness or whatever it is that I usually run from and not open the refrigerator or call somebody or distract myself. I'll actually let myself be present for whatever is here within me, the whole zoo, and learn to find a place of compassion and wisdom in the midst of it all. 
And this is the the work of the camel, to sit, to breathe over and over, to, to walk, to pray, whatever it happens to be. Isaac Dennison said, the cure for anything is salt water. Sweat, tears, or the ocean. So this is her way of speaking of the of the discipline. Um, and Chogyam Trumpa called meditation manual labor. You know, and there's the camel in the desert learning to kneel, to bow, to to honor. This is the way things are. Um, one of the most extraordinary poems of the poet Rilke, the man watching, he talks of, about, well, here are his lines. He says, what we choose to fight is so tiny and what fights with us is so great. If only we let, would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm. For when we win, it's with small things and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers in the Old Testament when the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand. Winning does not tempt this one. This is how we grow by being defeated decisively by constantly greater things. It's a pretty different message than you get in the kind of cultural zeitgeist, if you will. That in some way our life is not about winning, but it's about opening ourselves to the energies of life, come what may. And this is the work of the camel. Um, Here's Rumi's description of the camel. He says, you've lost your camel, my friend, and everybody's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Yes, I've lost a camel too. Big reward for whoever finds mine. He says this in order to connect with your camel that you can't find yet either. (laughs) He has lost it, but he doesn't know. Everybody's looking for something, says Rumi. But we're like the thief who steals from his own house. We are what we seek. So this stage of practice, the camel stage, is humbling. And when we sit, at first, the wounds that we carry come. There's a kind of deep process of healing in meditation. The wounds of the body, the wounds of the heart, the inner conflict, the measure of sorrow that each person is given along with the beauty of their life. Emily Dickinson writes, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up, then covers it with trance so you can walk upon it as if in a swoon. And we do, we live at times in a trance because we can't bear some of the sorrows of our life. And to sit as the camel in the first stages of meditation is to allow these all to arise and to touch them with respect. The measure of sorrows, the longing, the beauty, the loneliness... Sometimes, says Galway Canal, it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, as St. Francis put his hand on the brow of the sow. And the sow began to remember 
all down her thick length, from her snout all the way to the spiritual curl of her tail, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. And so when you meditate and you sit as the camel in the camel stage, whatever comes, the things that show themselves, the tensions that we carry in the body or the traumas that's stored in our nervous system or the things that we long for that weren't fulfilled, um, get bowed to, that get respected in some way and held like St. Francis holds the brow of the sow. You do not have to be good, writes Mary Oliver. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours, and I will tell you mine. And so this is the healing work of the camel, a kind of devotion, and with it comes a trust, if you sit and meditate, that after a time, and absolutely in its own season, the things that are hard to bear, hard to be with, that are as much a part of your humanity as your own breath, become workable. They become part of the compassion that deepens in you. So again, the poet Galib, he writes, For the raindrop, joy is entering the river. Travel far enough into sorrow, and tears turn to sighing. When, after the heavy rain, storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end? And so there's a way in which our our tending of ourselves is a, is a phase in meditation, a caring for, a, a, willing, a willing presence. And to the extent that we contend all of the parts of ourselves, to that extent can we then tend the earth, you know, or the, the people around us, or the community, or the trees, or, you know, the, the crazy wars and, you know, insane prison system and things that we see around us that we know don't work anymore. Somehow we need to find this way to tend those very things in ourselves, and it gives us the, the courage and the discipline and the devotion, gives us a, a strength to be in this world centered and wise. But after the camel... comes the stage of the lion. And the lion, or the lioness, has this great roar of authority. You know, the lionesses are actually the ones that hunt. They're the, they're the most fierce in many ways. Um, and I don't know if you've ever heard a lion roar close up. Even in a zoo, it's the most amazing thing, because a lion doesn't roar with its vocal cords or its mouth. It roars with its entire body. It's like a bellows. And when it roars, it's like every hair, every cell of its body is making this enormous sound. And all the other, you know, the baboons and the chimps and the birds, everyone goes, whoop, it's quiet. Okay, dude, somebody's talking. The lioness, the lion. The zoo just gets quiet. And what it says in some way is, 
I do not belong here. I do not belong in this zoo. And you can hear the voice of that lion as if it was, you know, wildly, you know, running across the Kalahari desert where it, you know, where it actually belongs. The Buddha's teaching was called the lion's roar because it was an in, a fearless invitation for all to awaken. I am here in the midst of it all. No matter what happens, I am still here. And I'm awake and compassionate no matter what happens. And the Buddha was challenged as a teacher by all these various ascetics and yogis. What do you know? How, what, what is your teaching? And when, when the Buddha spoke his lion's roar, he said, I've done every practice, every difficult practice that India has to offer. The beds of nails, the, you know, fasting and standing out in the sun on the hottest day of the year looking at the sun, said, and all of those things, they were not the way. They were not the way. The way is the middle path, the path that takes this one seat in the center of the universe, in the center of this earth, opens the eye of wisdom and the heart of compassion and says, yes, here we are connected with all things, not running away from them. And in this comes the great freedom of awakening, the lion's roar of the Buddha. And the lion bestows blessings, serves the Dharma, um, sees this huge and vast dance, and takes her seat or his seat in the midst of it all. The Buddha speaking, I consider the position of kings and rulers as that of dust motes in a sunbeam. I see the greatest treasures of gold and gems as broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags, see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds, and the great Indian Ocean as but drops of water at my feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians. If you don't understand that, go back to look at Wall Street and uh, you know the last years of our finances. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. I take this seat in the midst of this mystery of space and time, the timeless seat that sees all things. And this means finding your own royalty, finding your nobility, oh nobly born, your own dignity. And the beautiful thing in the prison work that I've done or in traveling in Burma or reading and hearing about, you know, the figures that are the most acclaimed and loved and acknowledged for their, their, the spirit that they carry, Nelson Mandela, Aung San Suu Kyi in this world, is that they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. The lion can be in the zoo But the lion's roar is, I do not belong in this zoo. This zoo cannot limit me. And there is, as we sit, a kind of dignity, taking this seat halfway between heaven and earth, being willing to bow to and name all of the forces that arise and still remain seated here as the lion or the lioness, remembering our own true nature. This is a poem from William Stafford called A Story That Could Be True. If you were exchanged in the cradle 
and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world, your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. And when the great winds come and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering, and the people who go by you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king. Maybe I'm a queen. And so Stafford points you back to remember some dignity, some beauty, some nobility that is your birthright, O nobly born, the Buddha nature within you, the roar of the lion. And this is Nikki Giovanni expressing it. I was born in the Congo, walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a period pyramid so tough that a star that glows every hundred years falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. <laughs> I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I'm a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. Crossed it in two hours. I'm a gazelle so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My son Noah built an ark. I stood proudly at the hem helm and we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. All men intone my name. I am the one who would save. I sewed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. Nikki Giovanni's lion's roar. But it's like the Nag Hammadi gospel, the woman writes, I am the firstborn and the last, and I am the mother of my father, and, and uh, the honored and the scorn. I am the barren one who has borne many sons, for I am the bride and the bridegroom. I am incomprehensible silence and memory never lost. I am one voice who sounds everywhere, knowledge and ignorance, the joining and dissolving. I am the hearing in all ears and the story and truth. Hear me in softness and know me in roughness, for I am she who cries out and she who answers. I am the only one who exists and yet does not exist, and there is no one to judge me, for I am beyond birth and death. And that could be a beautiful Buddhist text as well. It speaks like Kalu Rinpoche said, he said, there is, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not remember this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And it's a poem, but it's actually an experience. And the experience happens, I see it all the time on retreats. People get quiet. 
the mind starts to quiet, the heart starts to open, the, the shell of thoughts and busyness starts to drop away. And someone will be walking outside and walk up to a tree and they become not a tree hugger, but they realize, oh, you know, this bay tree and I have the same last name. We're children of the same earth, you know, and and they know, as Alice Walker said, I know that if I cut this tree, my arm would bleed. And this isn't just a, a poem of words or a myth, but it's an experience that we all have, walking in the mountains or giving birth or watching a birth or being at the mystery of someone's death or listening to amazing music or getting high or meditating or you know, whatever it was for you, and still is. There's something so alive and real beyond the small sense of self. And it doesn't mean that you don't tend your life. Just tend it in a different way. You tend it from the place of dignity and mystery. As I said last week, you remember not just your Buddha nature, but also your social security number, you know, but the, but the real game is to, to have the two together. And this lion's roar of taking your seat in this world, your dignity, O oh, nobly born, of being the Buddha, the awakened one, knowing your inner freedom, then gives birth to the last stage, the, the camel, the lion, and the child. And the child <clears throat> is really the child of the spirit. Angelus Salasis writes, if in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then God will once again become a child on this earth. And so the child is really the child of wonder. What Zen Master Suzuki Roshi called the goal of meditation, which is beginner's mind. And I like to think about the Voyager spacecraft. You know, we've been sending these spacecrafts out. And Voyager's gone farther than any other one so far. It's the one that went past, you know, Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and out, Neptune and Uranus and then out past what used to be the planet Pluto, whatever, you know. And the thing about the Voyager, it had it had that beautiful inscription on it, that picture from um, Leonardo of the of the squaring of the circle of the man standing there with his legs apart in that circle that we all know so well. But it had a picture of men and women. It had a hundred different animals' images. It had words in 55 languages. It had music. It had Kenyan drums and Balinese gamelan and Bach and Louis Armstrong. And it's headed out to the stars. And just imagine if some being, some kind of, actually, you know, sees this thing and touches it and it starts to play music. I mean, wow, what are these people? (laughs) Louis Armstrong in the next galaxy. (laughs) So to meditate, yes, is to heal. Yes, is to be the camel that's willing to serve and devote with a courage. Yes, it's willing to be the lion that says, this is what I know to be true, this liberation I have found in myself, no matter what you say, no matter what happens. 
but it's also a reclaiming of amazement, of beauty. The line from Mary Oliver, um, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. And this kind of mystery, we don't have to look very far. Sleep. Anybody ever paid attention to sleep? It's the most bizarre thing, you know? I mean, we're worried about letting go of stuff and should I keep it or maybe put it out at a garage sale? Should I give a little stuff away? You get tired and you get tonight and, oh my God, blessed unconsciousness. If only the world would go away for a while and I could have nothing. You know, I mean, it's what a weird thing that mammals conk out, close their eyes, and go someplace else for hours and then have all these visions and dreams. I mean, it's bizarre. Don't you think? It's as bizarre as having a hole at one end of the body. There's this tube into which you stuff dead plants and animals every day, grind them up and glug them through the tube, you know. Just the whole deal. It's pretty strange. Here's Whitman. Well, where are you? Yeah. Wait a second. That just can't be right. I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. The running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven, and a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Just the existence of things is so mysterious. Or the fact that you have wiggly things at the end and Nobody knows how consciousness works. No neuroscience. They can talk about the nervous system and so forth, but nobody actually knows how it works and how the, the neural pathways connect with consciousness. Consciousness is the thing that's not yet been studied in science, really. It's like gravity. There are equations about gravity, but nobody quite knows what it is except that it tugs on things or it's a warp in space-time or other kinds of definitions. So mysterious or water we couldn't exist without water and the fact that in a pretty small temperature range it can go from solid to liquid to gas just wild and all the forms of water Zen master Dogen said to meditate is like being out on the ocean and you never know quite where you are except here And the ocean is like a palace. It's neither round nor square. It's infinite in variety. It's a jewel. You know, it's a castle. It's enormous waves. It's a vision. It can be anything. Water. I remember some years ago, um, many, many years ago, when I'd recently come back from the monastery and gotten in a relationship, fallen in love with this woman, Um, who I had hoped would marry me, she had a couple of kids. She was divorced and they were young. And I loved her and I loved these kids. And so for the year or two that I was living with her, um, I became in some ways a kind of father figure for these kids. They were three and five. And I remember one day the circus came to town. And um, I got really good tickets, got seats right in the front row in the middle there, said, we're going to go to the circus, you know, and there were the horses. They liked the animals and the, the higher wire acts were too far away and not really that interesting. They knew how to tumble around on the floor and that was about as good as 
you know, being on the high wire. The tremors are sort of the same thing. But the animals, they liked a lot. And then the horses went around the ring. Then the elephants came out. And the elephants stopped after doing their, you know, fancy elephant dances and things. And in front of us, right close in front of us, was this big elephant. And all of a sudden, it peed. (laughs) And it was like this torrent of water. And these two, I mean, this is preschool level, right? Wow, check that out, you know. (laughs) That's really serious. This is really a big, you know... And then the elephant, and, and everybody else is watching the high wire, and they're just glued on the elephant. And then the elephant pooed, right? And it's like bowling ball size things, plop, plop. And they were just, a, so we went back home, we went to preschool. How was the circus? Oh my God, let me tell you about the circus. When, when my daughter was young, we went and lived as a family, my wife and daughter and I, for some periods in Asia, we would go on sabbatical and live in Indonesia or live in Thailand or different places. Also went down, lived in, in um, uh, the Yucatan, various places around the world. Um, and because we live in California, Caroline, my daughter, had never seen fireflies. So we were living in this house in Bali for this year. And it was springtime or whatever, it was nighttime after the rainy season. She had gone to sleep under her mosquito net. And I said, wow, this was our first visit. She was, I think, five or six years old. There are fireflies here. Great. And so I went out with a little cup, and I captured, caught, you know, a dozen fireflies. And I went kind of running back to the house. She was already asleep. And I opened her mosquito net, and I put the fireflies inside the mosquito net. And then I woke her up, and it was dark. And I said, Caroline, Caroline, wake up. She said, Daddy, what is it? Daddy, they have fireflies here. Look, and inside her mosquito net were all these fireflies floating around. We let them out, of course, but um, bugs that blink. I mean, come on, fireflies. Tell me about it. What kind of world is this? Ryokan writes, in my bowl, dandelions, lilacs, and the Buddhas of all three worlds, you know. And then he says, I go to play with the children, hang my bowl by the Buddhist shrine and romp around with them. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) I remember the Dalai Lama gave some teachings in Madison Square Garden some years ago. I think they were the Kalashakra teachings, the teachings on time and eternity and the mystery of how time is all the play of consciousness, which it is. And when we understand, when we sit and meditate, we come to rest in the reality of the present and see that past is just a thought, memory, and the future is a thought, and that all we ever have is this unfolding present that comes out of the void, out of nothing, and displays itself. And so we take our seat as the Buddha in the timeless realm. And so here's the Dalai Lama about to give these amazing teachings of liberation from time, you know, and finding the, the healing in the midst of the turning cycles of the, of the galaxies. And he comes out and there are all these Tibetan monks in their robes and there's, there's a kind of ritual element to it. They play these great, oh, these great horns that they have and they, 
you know, clash the cymbals and they do that multivocal chanting, oh, you know, and everybody, and it's very beautiful. And the Dalai Lama walks out and they made a throne for him and he goes up, it's got all this lovely, you know, oriental carpet. And at the top of the throne to make it comfy for him, they put a couple mattresses and then covered it with a silk or something. And he sat down on it and it bounced. <laughs> and he smiled this big grin and he bounced again and it bounced higher. And then he just started bouncing on it for a while, like a big kid. I mean, here's the Dalai Lama, Nobel Prize winner, right? You know, head of Tibet, whatever, about to give the most extraordinary Tibetan teachings on the nature of time and consciousness. And he's sitting there bouncing on the bed like a big kid. To awaken the child of, of the spirit is to find a freedom that is innate, that is a gift in you, that you carry and that you can give to every other being that you meet. This again from the Buddha, where he says, instructions to you. My friends, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and confusion and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. So it's really finding this capacity for beauty and joy. You meditate not in order to have an experience, but to quiet the mind, open the heart, and come back to yourself, come back to mystery. This breath. Yes, there's the healing of the camel. Yes, there is the dignity, nobility of the lion. And then finally, there is the the child of the spirit. And it gives perspective. You know that saying that is so common now from the Ojibwe Indians, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. As we practice, we allow the space of wonder to open. We shift from the content. My teacher Ajahn Chah was so um, so emphatic about this point. You come to him and say, I had this meditation experience. You know, I had a beautiful sitting and it was bliss came and light and dissolving and so forth. Or I had a terrible meditation experience and I relived this trauma and I was weeping and my body hurt. And he would just listen. You know, and he'd say, yeah, everything comes, doesn't it? And then it goes. He wasn't terribly interested in the content. But instead, what he would say is, can you rest in awareness? Can you become the witness to all things? Instead of getting lost in each of the movies that come and play the romantic comedy and the war movie and the action movie and the (laughs) documentary and, you know, the comedy um, of errors or whatever it happens to be, can you say, oh yeah, this is the movie, and here we are. Here we are, the space of awareness that can bow and say yes, touch it and be touched by it, be present for it, but not reactive, not lost, not afraid. Can you rest in awareness? Because this is the gift that will liberate you, and it's not a detachment. The funny thing that I hope I'm communicating is that as you do this, you become more present more loving, more, in some way, more alive. It's kind of paradoxical. 
The paradox from Mary Oliver who writes, for years and years I struggled just to love my life. Half of spiritual practice, that. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. It's this, teach us to care and not to care, is T.S. Eliot's words. Or here's another poem, explains it. David Budbill, he writes, Hanshan, this great, crazy, wonderful Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're all just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climb up the steep sides, sliding back over and over again, up and back down. So, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. As you sit, there will arise sad poems of loss and longing, poems of forgetfulness and jealousy, poems of beauty and betrayal and art, and every part of yourself will reveal itself because you're human. You take your seat in the midst of this humanity. And as someone said, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. For in the end, in the moment, in any moment, you realize that you're not who you thought you were, not this small sense of self, but something so much greater. And therein lies your freedom. Therein lies your happiness and your liberation. Machado, amazing poet, writes, Yo no soy yo. Let me see if I can find your poem, Machado. I am not I. I'm this one walking beside me whom I do not usually see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget, the one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. There is in us a inviolable spirit and to meditate is to invite uh, our attention to drop from the complexity and the busyness of our world which is fine and needs tending to quiet the mind to open the heart and to listen to some deeper current um, that is life itself singing itself through you make art all kinds you know, I, I, I have the privilege of working sometimes with Michael Mead, Maladoma Somme, Luis Rodriguez, these amazing guys who work in juvenile halls and prisons and with gang kids and so forth, and um, use poetry a lot. And you get a, you know, a room of kids and young men in prison or gang, gang kids, and you say, we're going to talk about poetry, and it's like, what are you talking about, man? You know, although hip-hop is poetry, it is. And then Luis will get up and he'll read a poem that's like a Mayan sacrifice where he opens his vein and 
the blood of his tragedy and his life just pours out and they go, you mean you can say that stuff? And they're invited to tell their story. And by the end of some days, Michael, Michael Mead is brilliant. He says, give me the kids that you can't work with. Give me the ones that you can't reach. Give me the ones in the juvenile hall or in the prison that nobody can deal with. Those are the ones I want to talk to. And by the end of a few days, they each have a story to tell. And not only that, at the end, there's a a ritual in which a, 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 a sacred place is set for them and a candle is lit and they stand up and the, whether it's the wardens or the POs or the, the uh, you know, the superintendents of the schools or whatever, teachers, parents come and they sit and they listen. And the poems that these young people write you know, are wrenching and horrific and beautiful and moving and somehow true. And when they get their voice, they start to get their life back. So it's not a small thing to have your voice. It's not a small thing to be able to know who you are in all these dimensions in yourself and find a freedom and liberation with that. So the last poem before we end, from Lynn Park, who used to sit here on Monday nights. She writes, take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. Those stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly, enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road and call you friend. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. And remember, your garden can never be taken from you. Take the time to meditate, to pray, It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden. You can always go there.